welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Kenyan Yoga Podcast is David Williams. He's been practicing yoga daily since 1971. In his recent book, My Search for Yoga, he calls himself a yoga detective, first travelling to India overland from Europe in 1972. He reached the renowned Swami Gitananda's ashram in Pondicherry, South India, where he saw Manju, the son of Patavi Joyce, demonstrate the Ashtanga Yoga Primary Series. He was immediately taken with this. Although he'd been assiduously learning yoga for the past few years, he was captivated by this new system. So when his visa ran out, he determined to make enough money to immediately travel back to Mysore to learn the yoga from Patabi Joyce. In 1973, he returned back to India, overland again on the magic bus from Istanbul with Nancy Gilgoff, his then girlfriend. They began yoga, uh, learning yoga in Mysore. David became one of the first non-Indian students to be taught the complete Ashtanga yoga system Vasanas and Pranayama directly from Joyce and became one of the first to be certified in the Ashtanga yoga after having mastered the original four series. In 1975, along with Nancy, he organised and sponsored Patabi Joyce and Manju's first visit to Encinitas, California. And they were then to introduce Ashtanga yoga to America and thus the world outside India. David himself is responsible for teaching the Ashtanga Yoga system to many of the world's leading teachers and practitioners, including David Swenson, Danny Paradise, Chuck Miller and Matthias Ratti, Kathy Cooper and Andrew Epler. David is 70 years old and he's lived on the island of Maui, Hawaii, since 1976. His book, My Search for Yoga, was 10 years in the making and is a yoga story to rival Shantaram including crazy stories of his journey overland to India, his teaching, Patabi Joyce coming to America, and many familiar characters you might be used to. It contains 130 rare colour images, including photos, original documents of the Ashtanga syllabus, and 12 letters from Patabi Joyce himself. You can find the book on his website, ashtangayoga.com, and we have two copies on our website, at Keen on Yoga. Welcome, David, to the Keen on Yoga podcast. Happy to have you here. Well, welcome. And um, how you how you got into yoga? Just briefly, a little intro. I first heard of yoga the spring of my freshman year at University of North Carolina. It was a nice day, and we were outdoors, a few friends talking. Yeah. And a friend named Scott said, "Have you ever heard of the yogis in India?" <clears throat> And none of us had. He put his legs in lotus. And I'd never seen anybody or never thought to cross my legs in lotus like that before. Because uh-huh. uh, yeah. this is long before yoga came to the West. Anyway, he said, there's these guys in India. They can sit, sit like this for six months. And they live off a cracker a day and a thimble full of water. And then something will happen. They'll, some emergency, they'll jump up, save the day, then return, sit down, put their legs in lotus for another six months. Well, I found that interesting. I thought he was probably exaggerating, but still it had got my attention because I realized these guys were liberated from the material world if they could just live outdoors and needed little or no food. Um, That moment passed. I didn't hear of yoga again for a couple of years. It was the summer of 1970. I went to the Atlanta Rock Festival. It was uh, the July 4th weekend, 1970. It was the last really big concert that Jimi Hendrix played at. Anyway, the master of ceremonies was a guy named Tom Law. He was one of the first students of Yogi Bhajan when Yogi Bhajan first went to Los Angeles. 
He was the master of ceremonies of the Atlanta Rocks Festival, Woodstock, and three other big festivals that summer. On the Saturday morning, he came on stage very early in the morning, like right after dawn. The thousands of people were waking up. And he said, now, before you get high on drugs, I want to show you how to get naturally high with yoga. Naturally high? I had heard that term, but I didn't know what to think about it. I was open-minded, so I decided I'd check it out. I moved as close to the stage as I could and followed along. And he led us through a series of asanas while constantly telling us to do root lock and deep breathing. Root lock is what we Ashtanga people call mulabandha. Anyway, so I'm stretching and breathing and doing the root lock, and I realize I am sort of getting naturally high. It really feels good, and the more I did, the better I felt. He continued teaching over the weekend at his little camping area, and I went over and joined them. I did the class again the next morning, and uh, the festival ended. But as I say, uh, that sort of planted the seed. Journey of a thousand miles Mm. began the first step. (laughs) I returned to North Carolina. It was my senior year of university coming up. My friend Rusty bought a copy of uh, Richard Hittleman's 30 Days to Yoga. And we started doing the daily practice each day for. the next 30 days. After that, or during that time, a friend gave me a copy of Be Here Now. I read that and I was fascinated. I spent the whole weekend reading Be Here Now. Monday, I went and got a passport. I wanted to go to India and meet a real yogi. Also around that time, there was a show on PBS, that's Public Broadcasting, casting the sort of educational television in the United States. Yeah. And they had a show about uh, Yogi Rama. No, I'm sorry, Swami Rama. Uh, This couple had met him in India. They were doctors at the Menninger Foundation. They were so fascinated by Swami Rama that they brought him to America to test his yogic abilities. And I saw that he could uh, increase and decrease his body temperature, stop his pulse, stop his heartbeat. And then what really got my attention, they had a pinwheel in a plastic or glass box so the wind couldn't blow it. But he stared at it and he made it go around. (laughs) You go, boy, I want to meet a yogi. I want to find out what this is all about. So those were my initial sort of yogic experiences. Within five months of that, I was in India looking for yoga. How, I mean, and how long did it take you before you got to Mysore? I mean, obviously, people know you from the Ashtanga yoga, but you were traveling around looking for things, you know, and, and practicing with many teachers, right? In, um, in Pondicherry, right? You were involved with uh, Swami Gupta. Is that right? Gitananda. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going around India looking for yoga. And it wasn't that easy to find. In a, a, a few places I found yoga, but they didn't know English. I was told to go to South India, to Pondicherry, because there was a big international ashram there. Uh, or a bendo ashram. I went down there. They were really nice. They welcomed us, gave us room and food and all for 30 days to get settled in. <clears throat> the problem was there was no hatha yoga. It was all service, trying to build Oroville mm. and all that. So I'm just doing my yoga practice on my own in my room. I found out about 
Ananda Ashram, which was nearby, and I went out there. And they were just starting a six-month teacher training course in, in, in English. So I joined up. In the final month, the teacher said, we have a real treat today. The son of a great Hatha yoga master is here with his friend, and they're going to do a demonstration this afternoon. That afternoon, Manju and his, and his friend Basaraju did a demonstration of primary series. Uh -huh. I saw that and realized that's what I was, was looking for. Manju spoke English, and I, I said, this is great. Will you teach me? And he goes, sure, take me to America. I'll teach you. And I go, uh... So that's yeah, a question yeah, I had at that moment in the book is that he wouldn't teach you at that point, right? He didn't teach you it. Mind you, mm, mm. mind you was just there for the day doing a demonstration. Okay, right. If you didn't say, well, I, show I me said, an hour. I said, show do you have a, an ashram or somewhere I can come? I'll leave here and be uh -huh, your new disciple. Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah. goes, no, we're just traveling around. <clears throat> We've seen India. We want to go to Europe or America. Take me to America. I'll teach you. I said, well, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. I was, I believed it was possible. I had gotten myself to India at the age of 22. I could probably get him to America. Yeah. I said, in the meantime, uh, where did you learn this? Uh, he goes, oh, my father's a yoga master in Mysore. And I said, well, maybe since he has a place, he'll teach me. And Manju said, he didn't say no, but he said, well, he doesn't speak English. He doesn't have any foreign students, but you can try. So that's how I found out about Manju's father, yeah. Patabi Joyce, in Mysore. My visa was about to expire, so I had to leave the country. I left, came back to the United States, uh, never planned to, but was asked to teach yoga, taught yoga, saved my money. And as quickly as possible, I went back to India in 1973. And that's when I went up to Mysore and started learning with the Tabi Joyce. Which time, how, which time did you drive over overland through Afghanistan? Both trips, I went over both. land. My first, in 1971, I had a one-way ticket to Barcelona, and I hitchhiked around Europe and um, actually met one of the major yoga teachers I ever had on that trip, which further inspired me to go on to India. And then the second trip, I did the same thing because it was the cheapest way to get from the United States to India. I could get a one-way ticket on, back then they had charter flights. I could get a one-way ticket for $100 so I could get to Europe, then uh, hitchhike to Istanbul, and then take a, one of those magic buses to India for like 20 bucks. So the first two times to India, I went overland through Europe and then Asia, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. Actually, the second trip, though, Afghanistan was closed because they were having a revolution there. So we had to go south of Afghanistan through the southern part of Iran into Baluchistan and Pakistan and across to India. Little geography for you there. You must, have been, you must have been pretty tired when you got to, to my, finally got to Mysore. Not at all. I was, no. <laughs> I was energized after being on that bus for so long. Yeah. I, was, I was ready to go. Right. And you've got, so, I mean, there's so much in the book, and, um, you know, obviously we'll try and refer to that as well. But, um, you know, so obviously everyone needs to read the book. Um, but you got to Mysore, to cut a long story short, um, you, you knocked on Patabi Joyce's door, um, and what happened then? Well, Saraswati came to the door, and I introduced myself. I said I was looking for Patabi Joyce, and she said, oh, that's my father. He's at the market. 
but he'll be back soon. Come in. Uh, We'll have a cup of coffee and he'll be back in a while. I was with Nancy Gilgoff, who many of y'all know. She was my girlfriend then. Anyway, Gregie came back. He didn't know any English at all, but fortunately, uh, Saraswati knew English and she was able to interpret. And he said, how did you find me? And I told him I had met Manju and I'd seen his practice and I wanted to learn it. I wasn't even totally sure what it was, but I was interested. And so he said, well, I think he tried to discourage us because he goes, if I teach you, you've got to come twice a day, 6 a.m. and 4 p.m. And you you got to come six days a week, every day but Saturday, full moon and new moon. Also, you have to pay for a month in advance. And if you miss one class, don't even come back. You're expelled. I go, don't worry. <laughs> but he, he was already he already had a program running, right? He was already teaching Indians and he's something going in the in it wasn't it like a kind of outhouse in the back garden, right? Something like that. No, it was no? <clears throat> you wouldn't call out of well outhouse. <clears throat> no, it was um <clears throat> his home had sort of two structures. The front right. house was uh a living room, two bedrooms, and a kitchen. And then there was a little passageway, and about three feet behind that was another building where the downstairs was the yoga shala, space for eight people to put down their mats and practice. Then upstairs was his bedroom and a little office that had a desk and also a little uh, single bed. Um, And that's where yoga class was each day. At the time, I think he had 92 Indian students. Uh, Nancy and I were the only foreigners. Ah, oh, so he's, he's already successful with local students. Yeah, um, it was sort of fortunate. The previous spring, he had uh, retired from teaching at the Sanskrit College. So he was having classes at his house each morning. Mm. The morning class started at 4 a.m. The first eight people there would start up and do their practice. The ninth person had to wait until somebody finished, and then they could take their place. Of course, when you finished, you couldn't do corpse there because somebody was ready to start. So um, if you wanted to do corpse, which I was surprised, none of the Indians seemed to want Mm. to do. Mm. We had always thought it was so important. Anyway, um, second class started at four in the afternoon, and went till people were finished like 7 p.m. or so. So that was the setup. Uh, and that the morning, was in the studio uh, of Laxmi Purim that people know. That was in the Shala, Laxmi yeah. Purim, Shala. Yeah, 876, Laxmi Purim, first cross. Hmm. Anyway, so and, um, Greg watched the morning class, and his son, um, Ramesh, who was about 15 years old, watch the afternoon class. Didn't realize Ramesh was that young at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was teaching you in the afternoon, Ramesh. Yeah, and he yeah. spoke great English. Uh-huh. So right. that was really good because mm-hmm. Guruji couldn't speak English. If I needed a qu- to ask him a question, I'd ask one of the students to be my interpreter and they'd ask it. But mainly I would just practice and he would watch and Correct me with his hands if he needed to. And you, you already had the kind of, how do you call it, the, um, the syllabus. He had the whole syllabus worked out already that he was going through. So he just kind of gave that to you one by one, right? Yeah. And how, how okay. was that? Yeah. Here's how it worked on that, on mm. the story of the syllabus. Um, about the third day, he, sh- he pointed out this framed document on the wall. It was written in Sanskrit. And he said, this is the complete Ashtanga Yoga syllabus. It has the four series of Ashtanga Yoga, primary, intermediate, advanced A, and advanced B. If you stick with it, this is what you'll learn. 
Also, it had the pranayama, the six little pranayama segments mm. we do. So um, I was fortunate enough that one of the my fellow students was a student at the Sanskrit College. So he translated the syllabus into English for me. I had a copy of Light on Yoga, which was uh, first published, I think, in 1971. I got it right at the end of my trip in Bombay before I returned to America. Anyway, <clears throat> so as you know, the postures in Light on Yoga are the same ones as we do in Ashtanga, but they're not shown in order. So now I had the names of all the postures in order, and I could do them all. I just had to gradually memorize each series. It's like learning four dances, the uh, asanas and the vinyasas. And I was determined to learn it. I knew I could. I was young and healthy. So that's, it took me about four years to learn the whole thing in three different segments, but I did. You weren't doing any training before that, or you just kind of like, because I mean, those postures, the advanced beat series, especially. Already for over two right, years. Right, okay. Okay. And before that, you were you kind of growing up, you know, near the water, lifeguarding, or was that right? Yeah, I was very healthy. Healthy, yeah. Swimming, playing sports that kids play. I was, yeah, I was in great shape. Plus, I'd never had any bad injuries, never broken any bones. And I was just naturally genetically flexible. So yoga was really fun and felt good to me. Yeah, yeah. Now, how was the teaching? I mean, how was the teaching at that time? What, what kind of, I mean, obviously you weren't experiencing, um, you know, deep conversations with the Batabi Joyce or maybe through interpreters, right? So it was mainly hands-on. Is that right? Yes. Well, as I mentioned, uh, eight people could practice. We'd go at 6 a.m., so they'd already been going for an hour and a half, two hours. Mm. And Guruji would have Nancy and I sit and lean against the wall and not be in anybody's way and watch the practice. And I would memorize uh, what they were doing. Initially, we started with Sayyid. My first class, Guruji had to sit and watch and memorize the um Salutation the Sun A and Surya Namaskaram B. Eventually, when uh, most of the students had finished and there were two spots, Guruji had Nancy and I sit down in front of him. We all three sat in Lotus. And he said, you know what Mula Bandha is? And we said, yes. So he put his hand on our abdomen and had us do deep breathing. And uh, he made sure we were doing Mula Bandha. And he goes, okay. I'm going to teach you a series of movements that's over 5,000 years old. This is classical yoga. Unlike other kind of yoga that's taught, you know, you learn this asana, that asana. This is more like a dance or like katas and karate, um, where you're continually moving and breathing through the series. And so um, he had me get up and do salutation to the sun a 10 times and then um he showed me the three finishing postures mm -hmm. uh, he explained that the bandhas were and the deep breathing were the most important part of it all you do mula bandha as is strongly what we say is uh with total focus strong mula bandha Pull your shoulders back, drop your head down, relax your neck so the most energy can go up your spine to your head. So you're squeezing the mula bandha tight at the base of your spine, relaxing your chin forward at the top of your spine, and sending the energy up through the chakras. Mm. Uh, Sorry, that reminds me of something that um, I heard of uh, people mention that you you iterate in your teachings that are kind of essentially keeping the chin in, right? Like quite a almost like a chin lock all the time. Is that right? Yeah, that's Jalandhara Bandha. Classical Hatha Yoga was asanas and bandhas while deep breathing. Guruji used to go, without the bandhas, this is not yoga. The bandhas were really stressed when I was learning. Uh, Jalandhara Bandha all the time? No, just on forward no. bending postures, downward dog. Right. You wouldn't do it in 
spinal twist or upward dog or anything like that. Mm. You wouldn't do it okay. in Kapoda Right. So forward bend and downward dog. Okay. Right. But, uh, anytime you're sitting later during the pranayama. Right. Yeah. 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 And how long does it take? I mean, it took you four years, sorry, to progress through the series. Did I mean what? And you, you obviously were kind of going and coming each time, and going back and, and teaching a bit, and earning money, and coming back again. How how did that? How did that go? Uh, the first time in Mysore, I had four months on my visa. I learned primary, intermediate, and half of advanced A. Then I went. My visa expired. Went back to the United States. I'd been to India twice. Never been to California. So I decided I would hitchhike across America, go to California. I never planned to, but I got invited to teach yoga there, started teaching, everybody liked it. Got a letter from Guruji, David, I'm 58 years old, never been anywhere. If you're teaching yoga in California, why don't you bring me to California and I'll help you teach? So I told all the students, they thought it was great. So we got organized and uh, sent the money. Initially, he said he was going to bring his mm. wife, but he realized neither of them spoke English. So instead, he brought Manju, who spoke English and could interpret from him for him and also help uh, teach the class. Mm. So they stayed with us two months. And during that time, I learned the rest of Advanced A and half of Advanced B. And then uh, Guruji went back to Mysore and Manju stayed and he's still there today in Encinitas, yeah. um, So that's where he was. You brought him to, you brought him to Encinitas, right? To, to yeah. the, was, it, was, that, was that the church hall? That, um, that came along later. That was um, later, was right. Yeah. It was a church, but a different one. It was, it was part of a, a karate studio, actually. It, right, well, right. Academy of Karate, Yoga, and Kung Fu. Anyway, yeah. um, then um, as soon as I could get it together, I went back to Mysore and learned the last half of Advanced B. This was 1978, and I was the only living person practicing all four series until I taught David Swenson, Danny Paradise, Kathy Cooper, and few other people. Hmm. What kind of obstacles did you come across in learning the series? Is there any specific, yeah. you know, none? <laughs> no obstacles really, except that because of visas and travel, I had, it got broken up into three segments where I learned. Um, so the obstacle, I guess, was, getting myself to India or getting Guruji to America so I could just be with him long enough to memorize, to do and memorize the series. Mm, mm. And at the time, I mean, you know, he was famed in the early days for giving quite kind of vigorous adjustments. Is that, was that your experience? Yes. I didn't like it. My intuition told me it was dangerous, but also I'd, so many times I'd heard, you must surrender to the guru. And mm, uh, mm. you got to trust somebody sometimes. And so I just mm. go, okay, I hope I live through this. I didn't like the adjustments. I didn't th think they helped me in any way. Right. I saw a lot of injuries from these adjustments. Mm. And in my own situation, <clears throat> I told Guruji I didn't want help. I didn't need help. I could do it fine by myself. And uh, But sometimes he'd just want to push on me. But as soon as I learned the last posture of Advanced B, I never let him or anybody else push on me again. Mm, mm. You did. I mean, he, he kind of did. I think I read in the book he did kind of give you a little bit of an adjustment in, in uh, what was it, some certain advanced backbend, right? Yeah. yeah, the worst injury I've ever had in my life was at the hands of Patabi Joyce. Uh, and it took quite a while to repair. And it made me really uh, reluctant to let anybody push on me. 
I didn't want to get hurt from yoga. Yoga is supposed to make you feel better, not worse. Injuries are no part of yoga. If you read the ancient yoga scriptures, there's nothing about yoga injuries, anything about that. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, another famous quote of yours is, "If it, if it hurt, was it if it hurts you doing it wrong, something like that." That's, heard that. that's what I believed, and that's what I understood the yoga teachings to say. Yoga is about increasing prana, and nothing decreases prana more than pain and injury. Mm-hmm. And you got, you got, I mean, what you kind of, you got over that injury, right? Not by myself. I asked, I told Patabi Joyce, you've hurt me, fix me. And he didn't know how. And fortunately, I eventually met a rolfer named John Empey, who was able to get my vertebra back in the right place. And I've been very careful to mm. not get injured again. Mm. Well, so, you, I mean, when you were teaching after that, then you didn't give physical adjustments. Or did you? Well, I assisted people. I helped Mm. them with stuff, you know, but no, I didn't push on them. I didn't, there was no purpose. And it, it eventually just led to injuries. And I didn't want my students to get hurt. And I didn't think it was necessary. And so I assisted people plenty. Like if somebody was to say, going to jump up to handstand and put their legs in lotus, I'd spot them so they didn't fall. And, you know, balancing things, different things. But, uh, no, this strong pushing, I didn't like. And eventually I found out that, um, well, I was curious, where does this touching people during yoga practice come from? I had been around India after a while. I went to Rishikesh, all these different ashrams. People didn't touch each other while they did yoga. They didn't even shake hands. They do namaste. So this pushing thing was part of Patabi Joyce's Ashtanga yoga research. They were trying to figure out, I guess, if uh, it had any benefit. If you know anything about his teacher, Krishnamacharya, he eventually, after his research, for the last 40 years of his life, he didn't... uh, do adjustments, didn't teach him, didn't advocate him. He switched to Vinny yoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found out about that, but it was just too elementary for me at the level I was in asana, so I didn't want to switch to Vinny yoga. I just continued doing the Ashtanga yoga, but I would do it like continuous movement like it was supposed to be, not stop and have somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and so what always intrigued me is you, you kind of learned the series and then subsequently after that, you kind of went your own way, right? You didn't, you know, you didn't continue a connection. That was it. You said you learned the series when we've talked before and, and then you had nothing else to go back for. Yes. And um, mm. once I learned this series, I just, I go, this is, I want to really perfect this. And um mm. I just needed a nice, clean, healthy place to practice yoga. And I found a, you know, by then I discovered Maui, Hawaii. And I had a little shack on the beach for $60 a month. So I just continued daily practice twice a day for the next 18 years. After 18 years, I started uh, practicing once a day, which I've continued up to now. Uh, in July 3rd of last year, made 50 years for me of yoga practice since my first class. My God. So so uh, that was another question I was going to ask. So you, you learned the series, and by that time you were, what, you know, 26 or something like that, right? 27, when you'd learned the, the syllabus, as yeah. it was, yeah? Something yeah. like that. So, And then you continued it for, for 18 years. At, at that level, right, practicing all those uh, series that you learned, is that right? Yeah, I do primary on Sunday, intermediate on Monday, advanced A on Tuesday, advanced B on Wednesday, advanced A on Thursday, advanced B on Friday, 
But Friday afternoon, I'd only I would take a holiday. So I only practice once. So you'd do that. You'd repeat the series morning and night. If you were doing advanced day in the morning, you'd do it advanced day in the afternoon as well. Is that is that because you were practicing twice a day? Well, um, yeah, I, I would only do primary on Sundays because uh, I really wanted to do um, to work on the advanced. I do like I said, primary Sunday, intermediate Monday, or maybe I could do like. Advanced A in the morning, advanced B in the afternoon, whatever. And also I did the pranayama each day. Um, I would do that once a day. Or I, it's been a while. I don't I think I just did pranayama in the morning. I didn't do it twice a day. Right. So evidently this is, you know, kind of slowed down a bit now. And how, you know, how did you slow it down? And, and you know, and how did you modify it as you, you know, as you've gotten older with it? Um. Well, up till about the age of 45, I was doing all four series up past the time we did the David Swenson advanced video. Mm. And then I, I bought a piece of land and I wanted to build a house on it. So I go, if I'm doing yoga morning and afternoon, when, I'm gonna, when am I going to work on the land in the house? So at that point, I um, started only practicing in the morning in the afternoon I'd work on the land and build in the house mm-hmm. so um yeah so so you mentioned other yogis in the book Tatwala Baba and uh, a couple of others particularly Tatwala Baba I suppose and he invited you to um to live with him in in you know um and you you know you, you haven't you know where did you go did you have other teachers after Patabi Joyce or you know where where did it go after that well, um, over the years, I've, you know, continually practiced, wanted to, to check out all the different kinds of yoga. But I stuck with the Ashtanga yoga because I like the form. I like the series. I thought it was, really was figured out in a, a – I liked a system where I didn't have to figure out what to do. It, I just did the system. And I was told it was 5,000 years old and it stood the test of time. And I kept, I'd go to Rishikesh and different places. And um, Maui, you know, is one of the spiritual vortexes of the world or something. And any, back when all the gurus were coming to America from India, they would all come to Maui, even the Dalai Lamas come here. So I'd go check out all the different teachers and meet the gurus, but I never personally found a system of Hatha yoga I liked better than the Ashtanga. So that's mm. what I did yesterday, uh, today, Saturday. Essentially, you haven't, you know, I mean, you haven't had a teacher since like 1975 or something. Um, uh, well, give or, t- give or take a few years. Yeah, yeah. somebody I went and learned their asana program. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tabby Joyce was my final asana teacher, although I've practiced asanas with plenty of different people and met them and checked out their method. Yeah. You didn't, um, did you do any other study around it or have you just kept, kept with the asana? Did you um, take any other teachers on for philosophy or anything else? Well, um, I always read a lot my whole life, uh-huh. and when I got into yoga, I read everything I could find in English on yoga, Hinduism, India. Yeah. Uh, when I'd get to India, I'd go to Motilal Bernasi Das in Delhi, and because that was the main publisher of yoga books in English. And in the mm-hmm. uh, United States, it was um, wiser uh, booksellers in New York. So. Um, I was self-educated, I guess, on that. Um, but, you know, like I said, all the gurus would come to America. I would go mm. to their lectures and listen and ask questions, whatever. To that end, I mean, what books have, have kind of kept with you? Well, let's see. What was your kind of recommend? I mean, do you have any kind of recommended reading that you would give to a student or anything like that? 
Uh, give me a second to think about books I would recommend. Sure. All right. Be Here Now, of course. That was the book that inspired me to initially go to India, Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das. Um, uh, as far as the Yoga Sutras go, How to Know God by Christopher Isherwood by far is the best translation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, I liked, um, as far as the theory of yoga and history, Yoga, Immortality, and Freedom by Mircea Eliade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good, and, yeah. Um, yeah. Then the other, I mentioned that uh, one of my initial inspirations for yoga was Swami Rama and I I really enjoyed his book Living with the Himalayan Masters uh, yes I've read that that is good yeah I mean as a as a quick aside just thinking maybe you, did you meet Ram Dass? I imagine you would have met him right yes I did um, yeah uh, after my first trip to India I was in living in Miami teaching yoga and uh, Coconut Grove and Coral Gables, and um, Baba Ramdas came to Maui and gave a presentation at the Unitarian Church. So I went with some of my friends and heard his talk, but I didn't meet him. And then about 10 years ago, Baba Ramdas moved to Maui and lived here on Maui for the last 10 years of his life. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine who had known him for decades invited me to go to his house and meet him, which was wonderful. And we sat together. It was after uh, he had had a stroke, so we could hardly talk, or he could talk very slowly. Anyway, I sat in front of him. I said, I'm so happy to meet you. I read Be Here Now, and it changed my life. It inspired me to be a yogi. After reading Be Here Now, I went to India. Now I've been to India six times. My whole life has basically been dedicated to yoga all these decades. And I just want to thank you. And he couldn't uh, really say much, but a, a tear ran down his cheek. And it was one of the most poignant moments mm -hmm. of my life. And then uh, in February, he died, and it was the last social event I went to before the COVID mm. isolation began. I went to his funeral at uh, uh, the Maui Cultural Center. It was an amazingly beautiful uh, uh, gathering. Um, and. Uh, mm. Mm. All the Maui yogis and spiritual yeah. people were there. It was a wonderful gathering. I suppose um, Krishna died sort of at it, which was oh really? He was there, right? right. Oh, you you just met everyone. Um, how, how did you start? I would. I just got to you know to to let people know, or give for you to give people a brief overview of how you started in, on on Maui, because that became a kind of hub of Ashtanga yoga. Um, you know, with David Swenson coming, Kathy Cooper, and Danny Paradise. How how did you start um, on Maui? How did that transpire? Oh well, um, after I'd been in Hawaii for a while, I realized. I mean, after I'd been in California for a while, I realized that I wanted to keep moving. Because I love swimming every day, and the ocean was just too cold, even in Southern California. I'd heard about Hawaii and Maui. So I was, again, I was with Nancy Gilgoff at the time. We got one-way tickets to Maui, thinking we'd just check it out for a couple of weeks and then go back to Miami, where I would continue teaching yoga and go back to India again because I still had the last half of fourth series to learn. Anyway, uh, so Nancy and I arrive on Maui, um, spend the night, crashed on these people's floor. And the next morning we went to this park 
to practice yoga. Uh, noticed over in the other corner of the, the park, there's this older looking fellow practicing yoga as well. After I did my practice, I went over, sat down in front of him, put my legs in yoga namaste, and lotus, namaste. And we introduced ourselves. He told me his name was Cliff Barber. He said, and it turned out he was 19 years older than me. I was, I guess, 25, so he was, or 26, so he was uh, maybe 49 or 50. Anyway, um, well, I didn't know I'm doing my math wrong. He was 44, 45. Anyway, he said, what are you doing? I've been practicing yoga for 10 years. What you're doing is way more advanced than anything I've ever seen. And I said, oh, it's called Ashtanga Yoga. I learned it from in India from a fellow named Patabi Joyce. And he goes, I want to learn. Will you teach me? And I go, uh, I hesitated. I go, well, when I learned it, you had to do a 30-day commitment to even get started. And I don't even know if I'm going to be here 30 days. But then I thought, well, this guy isn't a beginner. And mm. I would like a yogi friend here on mm -hmm. Maui. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to be here tomorrow morning. I'll get you started and, uh, you know, teach you the first salutation and get you going. And in return, maybe you could introduce me to all the other Maui yogis. And uh, I know they're here somewhere um, and you're, you live here, you know everybody. And he goes, you're right. There are so many young people here who would uh, love to learn yoga and there's nobody to teach them. Would you, if you want to meet all the people who do yoga or are interested in yoga, you should do a demonstration and they'll all come and you can meet them. Mm. And I, I go, okay, why not? You know, this is a good way to meet everybody. So we uh, agreed that in three days at 7 a.m. in the morning in that park, uh, we'd do a demonstration. Also uh, with Nancy and I was another girl named Marcia. So when that day came, I talked to him a little, explained what it was. Uh, Forty people showed up. I did, uh, 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 well, Marcia did primary, Nancy did intermediate, and I did advanced day. When we were finished, uh, I asked, are there any questions? And one fellow raised his hand. He'd go, I'm uh, the local karate teacher. I can see this yoga would really be good for my martial arts. Will you teach me? And I said, well, I told Cliff I'd teach him tomorrow. Sure, come tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. and I'll teach you too. But uh, if I start, you can't miss. you got to come every day. He agreed. Somebody else goes, can I come too? And I go, yeah, I guess so. Well, the next morning, 7 a.m., 39 people were there ready to go. <laughs> so I was just, just practicing. I mean, no, obviously, no yoga mats. I'm just practicing the graph. Yeah. Oh, this was 20 or 30 years before Manduka yeah. yoga mats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people would use a, a, beach towel a, a big beach towel or right, eventually okay, yeah. a carpet and cut a piece of carpet that was heavier, like the size of a yoga mat now. Right, no, this right. was decades before yoga mats. Hopefully like a short-haired carpet that wasn't too, you know, like a shaggy carpet with covered in sweat. Okay. With <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did, um, how, I mean, you famously taught David Swenson amongst other people. How did David get to the island? What were your experiences of teaching David? How did he arrive? David started with me when he was still in high school, and he was in school in California and came to my classes. And then um, after I'd been in Mysore, uh, Mysore, and Maui, I, um, well, I tell the story of how I got, how the money came to me uh, in the book. I tell uh, so that Nancy and I could go back to India. Remember, I'd learned three and a half of the four series, and I still had to learn the four series. So um, once we had the money, uh, by coincidence, I got a letter from David. goes, dear David, I've graduated 
high school. I want to teach yoga, but nobody around here wants to learn. What should I do? And I said, hop on the next plane. This is perfect. Come to Maui. I'll teach you how to teach Ashtanga. And uh, you can take over the classes while Nancy and I go to India. So that's what happened. David came to Maui. So he was like uh, 18 or something. Huh? He was about 18, was he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um, we uh, got our tickets to India. After about 10 days, I sort of showed David how to run a Mysore class and introduced him to all the students. And everybody loved him, of course. And it went great. And uh, Nancy and I went to India for four months. And I learned the rest of Advanced B. And then um, came back and uh, I took over the classes and uh, David went to India. Right. And now um, David and Shelly, his wife, who a lot of y'all know, um, have bought land on Maui. And so I'm, I'm seeing him again in my life. It's great. They come for yeah. a month in August, have been and teach and at Christmas. So we're still connected. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so looking back over the years, what, what do you really, can you say what yoga has meant for you in your life? Well, yoga has been, uh, I guess, the guiding star of my life. Um, mm. I've bef- before I ever heard of yoga, I knew that health is your greatest wealth. And I realized I wanted to travel, see the world. The more exotic the places are, the also the dirtier. So traveling's great fun as long as you feel good. But once you're sick, forget it. You know, there's no fun in being in some foreign country, laying on some mat with chills and fever, and going, "Why did I ever leave home?" Anyway, so. I started the yoga just as a physical practice. And then it was revealed to me that physical and mental are all connected. And uh, yoga just revealed itself to me. And um, I, like I said, I investigated all kinds of different systems of yoga. And I liked the Ashtanga best. So I stuck with it. and um, mm. and. I wanted to stay healthy, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and I haven't found a better system that I can do that. And right now I'm 71 years old and I feel healthy. And what do you, what do you practice? What do you practice now? I practice the pranayama and primary and most days I swim a half an hour uh, before I practice. Right. I have, I can say, I have modified my um, my practice. Um, I uh, I do the, you know, I'll, I'll do the salutation standing, and then once I'm on the floor on all the vinyasas, I hold the upward dog for five, since okay. I primarily is more forward bending than back bending. Then I practice the Floor postures the same way I did before with the vinyasas holding the upper dog until I get to rolling um, so that I get my spine equally in both sides of my rib cage. I, I roll each direction rather than just one way and got to remember, okay, oh. tomorrow. In the rolling, I do each direction. And then um, after... Are you you're uh, still jumping back and... You know, you're not still doing the jump well, back. This jump. Age now I'm stepping back, not jumping yeah, back. Yeah, because I hope so. I bloody yeah. hope so. But, but you, I mean, you actually invented the advanced primary. And as I understand it, they weren't kind of doing all these handstands in the primaries and the lift up before you kind of came along, were they? Yeah, that's right. We invented that here in Maui. Right. Uh, anyway, um, also after, uh, I really don't want, any injuries, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So I don't take a chance. I don't do the the somersault after septa trivikram. Mm-hmm. And um, I I leave out Setu Bandasan. I don't teach it, don't recommend it. 
All but right. otherwise, do the primary like I always did. Also, I I don't do shoulder stand or headstand. I've I've observed over the last 50 years that those do far more harm than good because people get neck injuries. Uh, instead of the the headstands, I uh, for years I'd either do handstand for 108 with my index fingers and thumbs touching to make it harder, or do walk on my hands for 120 steps. And I always thought walking on one's hands was the most advanced yoga thing there was. Hmm. And that was greatly encouraged by Guruji and Ramana. Yeah, yeah. You said that. that they, they encouraged you to do that. Yeah, and you used to walk people around in, in, in Maui on their hands, didn't you? I think. Yeah, I would. As yeah. soon as they learned primary, they'd start learning handstand first against the wall till they could hold it for 50. And then I'd spot them and they'd start walking around on their hands. <laughs> Kathy, uh, I interviewed Kathy. She, she told me you did that with her. Um, so um, have, you ever, have you ever kind of thought too much about diet? What, you know, have you observed diet? What kind of diet is good for yoga? You know, how, how's that? Has that been a, an issue in your life? Well, of course, eating is a big part of life. When I started with, when I went to India, of course, in the ashrams, they were vegetarian, no eggs. Uh, but with the Tabi Joyce, he was, he really wanted us to be strict vegetarian. So, uh, again, no eggs, no fish, none of that. After I finished learning with Tabi Joyce, I'm living in Hawaii and one of our best sources of food is the ocean that surrounds us and i felt like i needed more protein to be stronger so i started eating fish like medicine you know it made me stronger mm. it never messed me up so we have a garden we try to eat and we mainly eat organic now we have chickens because the uh, chicken poop is the best fertilizer you can have for your garden we don't eat the chicken, but I occasionally eat eggs or we'll use the eggs for cooking. But I will say um, that one doesn't have to be a vegetarian to practice yoga. For instance, Eskimos can do yoga. How could an Eskimo be vegetarian? You know, all they have to eat is whale blubber or something. So each person, I think, has to just figure out right. the diet that me. But I live in the subtropics. Uh, so I eat lots of fruit, all the healthy food here and seafood. Right. Right. And and you change that like, diet. Cause I mean, I think Kathy was saying in the early days in Maui, you were eating a lot of raw and, and kind of, you know, experimenting a bit with diet back then. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. You just kind of settled down now. just a kind of regular diet. Um, Okay, so just to wrap it up then, well, um, can you give us a, a biggest uh, inspiration, just on the top of your head maybe? Well, as I mentioned in the book, I met my guru before I heard of yoga. I guess my biggest inspiration was Booty. The person I say in my search for yoga was my first guru because he told me, you don't have to live like all of the squares that were your role models growing up. Booty was a beatnik. He was pre-hippie. He was older than me. Anyway, he said, you can go anywhere, do anything. Your only limitation is your imagination. If you can visualize it, you can materialize it. And at this time, I'm, you know, 17 years old. I wanted to travel and see the world. And I already intuited that you have to be healthy particularly as a traveler. And so then when I found out about the yoga, I felt like the yoga empowered me to follow my dream and travel and see the world. So booty was mm. my influence. He told mm. me I could, could do um, anything. Do you have any regrets? What's your, or your biggest regret? Maybe you didn't go to a place or, or do something you wanted to? Not a one. Really? I have. I have had the most wonderful life. I've been living my dream. Again, Booty gave me the confidence you can go anywhere, do anything. 
Now I'm 71 years old. I get my government check each month. And I did it. I stayed free my whole life. And I'm free now. I never, after I started, I mean, I had a job as a lifeguard as a teenager, but then I got into yoga, then I ended up teaching yoga. So I never went to the factory. I just, I've been a yogi. What's your greatest achievement? What do you think your greatest achievement is? What are you most proud of? Oh, well, in, uh, in uh, 1992, I was undefeated in the Hawaii State Chess Championship. $175. That was huge. And I still play chess every day. I just got my year-end report from chess.com. I'm playing in the 91st percentile of the world. So that's good. I enjoy chess. Um, Pretty good. Yeah. I would say um, um, learning the all four series, because when I, when I was learning four series, nobody else was practicing it. Once I learned it, I was the only living person on earth, including India, practicing all four series. So I'm glad. I don't know if we said that was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, at about the age of 33, I realized I should take pictures of myself doing these asanas so I can look at them in my old age. <laughs> so um, for four days, each day, I, uh, we took pictures of me doing each of the four series. But this was before digital printing. So I was. Um, unable to like do anything with the pictures it would have cost so much to to have them all printed up you know in a book or something so i just made a big scrap book and it sat under my pool table for 30 years maybe and then about well it was over 10 years ago it was after patabi joyce had died anyway i was teaching a workshop in las vegas and this fellow came up to me and one of the students in the workshop on the last day and said, over the weekend, I've been doing some research and it appears that the advanced part of Ashtanga yoga is pretty much undocumented. Is that true? And I said, yeah, I guess you're right, really. And he goes, well, Patabi Joyce has died. If you die, this knowledge could perhaps go extinct. We can't let this happen. I go, okay. <laughs> What do you got in mind? And he goes, do you have pictures of asanas? And I go, yeah, I got them all. And he goes, well, we've got to um, do something with these uh, pictures so this knowledge isn't lost. And I go, oh, are you capable of doing that? And he goes, no problem. I do the website for the Dalai Lama. I'm just left India to be back here to visit my parents. I can do this. And so I go, okay. Um, and I'd seen Dharma Mitra's big asana poster. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let's make an Ashtanga poster. So he and I and a graphic design artist named Barbara Stanley and a doctor of Sanskrit from London named Charlie uh, Taylor Rugman, uh, we worked on the poster for two years, had it printed up. It's never been advertised or promoted or you know commercially available on Amazon or something but when the student is ready the poster appears so people have ordered it <laughs> and they're in the schools all over the world the complete Ashtanga syllabus it's still the only yes the only poster that shows all four series and nobody's ever found a mistake on it in these years and I guess my fourth achievement was of course writing my memoir, which I entitled My Search for Yoga, because that's what it is, the story of uh, my childhood, learning about yoga, going to India, and it uh, is that story. And, and this is a, this, this, uh, My Search for Yoga is a fantastic, fantastic book. I've, I've recently read it, um, and it's very entertaining. I think you said, David, that you wanted it to be like kind of your, uh, your favorite book was Shantaram, right? And you wanted it to kind of somewhat... 
resemble that, which which it really does justice to. It. It's a it's a very entertaining uh, book and uh, with uh, incredible uh, stories of uh, we didn't get onto it today, but when Guruji comes to America, you bring Tabi Joyce to America, and and you know just uh, yeah, wonderful. So uh, you can order that from him, uh, from David Williams. So um, thank you, David, for being the guest today. And yeah, um, I could uh, add yeah. the information for my book, My Search for Yoga, or the yeah. complete yoga syllabus or on my website, which is ashtangayogi.com, or you can just type in David Williams Yoga, and it'll take you there. Exactly. Um, so do that. Thank you, David. Thank you, Adam. Aloha. Aloha.